Well, uh, it's good to see all of y'all today. If you're a guest, my name's David. I'm the pastor of the church. We're glad you're here. Glad you could be a, a part of things with us. You're always invited to the, to the different things that we have going on. Uh, we are in this month of January as we kind of kick off the new year. We're in a series entitled Collision. And uh, the premise of this series is, is really this. It's kind of geared towards more of people who are followers of Christ. But for anybody, if you're not a follower of Christ, it should be helpful to you. But if you're a follower of Christ, you should realize that basically with the culture around us today, we're in a collision course with them. I mean, we clash with them a lot. And so the purpose of this series isn't to be critical of the culture. It's to help us how to, to love the culture, deal with the culture, help them come to Christ, to engage them, but not embrace them. And uh, the thing I want to answer, the question I kind of want to answer throughout this series is really this. How does a follower of Jesus, uh, how do we honor God, which is what we're called to do? How do we grow in our faith? How do we reach people for Jesus in a collision with a culture that's hostile to us? How do we do the things we're supposed to do in a culture that's really clashing with us, you know, all along the way? It's, it's a tough, tough thing to figure out. And, uh, and so today's message, though, I think of all the messages, this is the one that I think really seeks to answer that question the clearest way. It's the message entitled Forever Faith. Because ultimately, faith is really what it's all about. And uh, we're going to be in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to talk a little bit about the few verses ahead of that in chapter 10, at least read to them. But in this message, and it's going to be a little bit deep, but here's what I really want you to get. In a collision with a culture that attempts to undermine your relationship with Jesus, you need a forever faith in Jesus. If you're going to have a collision with a culture that really does seek to undermine your faith in Jesus by its very nature and design, then you need to have a faith in Jesus that lasts forever. That's the only way that's ever truly going to work. And so as, as I go to this message today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about stealing faith. Um, as a follower of Jesus, the essence of my relationship with Jesus is based on faith. Yeah, it's the faith not that I come up with. He gives me faith. I utilize that faith. I exercise the faith he gives, and I trust him with my life. That's, that, that is the heart and soul. I mean, Christianity really boils down to having faith, having faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing is that just about every other religion you can think of, philosophy, the systems in place, has no real place for faith. You don't really need faith in any other religion in the world. Just go do research. You know, they'll talk about believing the facts about something, you believe certain things, you do certain things, but not our concept of faith, which we'll talk about more, more in a minute. And that's really an interesting thing. And, and so in order for our culture, which is not a Christian culture at all, but, but it's something else which doesn't require faith, in order for it to be able to make any inroads, it, it really has to appropriate certain concepts that we have as a follower of Jesus. One of the things that I share with you from the very beginning is that uh, Christianity is always counterculture. Whatever culture we find ourselves in, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you, you run counter to that culture. You have to. And it's because of things like our faith in Jesus that runs counter to the culture that we're in. You know, we, 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 we've talked a little bit about moral relativism. And as I shared with you from the very first message, moral relativism is uh, the, the fact, the idea that there's no objective reality, that you create your own reality. There's no objective truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. The following week, we talked about syncretism. Syncretism is, you know, t pick and choose whatever, whatever aspects of any religion or philosophy or belief system you want, just add them together. They don't require faith. But the interesting thing in America is that 70% of people in America still consider themselves connected some way with Christianity. 
More than that, consider themselves religious. Still about half the people in America will tell you they have a church that is their church home to some capacity. And if you're in the South, the Midwest, if you're in certain cultures, if you're in a heavily Catholic area, those numbers go up really high. And so for a culture to make inroads, and what you see happening within Christianity even, and embracing the culture, is you've got to take certain concepts that come from Christ, come from our faith. Concepts about love, faith, and forgiveness. And you take those concepts, and you, you adapt them to your view of life, and then you kind of throw them back at the Christians and say, well, we have love, we have faith, we have all the things you do, only it's not the same. And so one of the things that I really pointed out to you in, in this series is, is from the very beginning is that we have to understand that God reveals himself to us. That's how we know something about God. That ultimate revelation of God to us is Jesus. So that makes Jesus the ultimate revelation. He's the ultimate authority. There is a moral authority in life. It's Jesus. There is only one way to God. That is Jesus. The New Testament makes that clear. And in the danger, if you embrace the culture, if you open your arms up to the culture, and you accept things like moral relativism and syncretism and you invite them in, you run the risk of missing the opportunities to really come to Jesus. You'll get sidetracked and delayed. In the book of Hebrews, what I've tried to stress to you in this book is that you had a guy who we don't know. could be a gal, I guess, but we'll say a guy we don't know. Write a book to people we don't really know who they were in the mid-60s. But it was primarily Jewish people. And they were Jews who had come to Jesus. They had become followers of Christ. Maybe they were thinking about it, but they were thinking about leaving Christianity. Because of persecution, because it was hard from their families that rejected them and they'd be kind of being cut out. They were saying, why why should we keep doing this? And they were thinking about going back to the Old Testament covenant, the law, the Old Testament law. They didn't call it the Old Testament law, they just called it the law. And, And the author of Hebrews shows the superiority of Jesus. Why would you go to the law when Christ is superior? Why would you go to the old covenant when in chapter 8 it tells us the old covenant is obsolete and there's a new covenant that replaced it? That covenant is Jesus. And Jesus is superior to the angels, to Moses, to the law, to the sacrifices, to the high priesthood. He's superior to everything. Why would you go back to that? And that's the thing for us. Why would you ever leave the truth of faith? And yet in a culture in conflict with us, things get taken, appropriated, moved around. One of the key things in the book of Hebrews is the idea of faith. That's where we're going to be in a little bit. Faith is something that not only saves us, but it sustains us in Christ. I look at the culture today, and I see all types of ways to take the concept of faith, and they change it and twist it. The other day, I, I saw on a social media platform something I've seen several times. I saw uh, this, this, this meme, I guess what you call it. It said, believe in God, and God will work for you. And all, all that, Everybody loves that, little hearts and flowers and unicorns and rainbows everywhere, you know? I'm like, well, that's just garbage. That's pure garbage. Well, their word believe is not the same as mine. Their word believe is just acknowledge God. If you acknowledge God, he will work for you. Well, first of all, you can never acknowledge God if God's not already at work. The only way you could ever even acknowledge that there is a God is if God has revealed himself to you. So he's already working. And if God waits for us to do anything, he ain't ever going to work. And that's manipulation. You're saying God is there, can't do anything until you do something. That's not how it works. The idea is simply to have some sort of belief or faith. We, we call that just having faith in any way capacity, fideism. And fideism means to have faith in faith. It's an illogical thing. It's the idea that you see, well, if you'll just believe in anything, you can believe in the power of love, you can believe in friendship, you can believe you know, that God is this energy. As long as you believe something, everything's okay. Well, that's foolishness. That's illogical. That's not what Christian faith is. 
The other thing that I see is this really almost insidious virus that sweeps through Christianity today. It's less than 100 years old or about 100 years old called Prosperity Gospel. It comes from Kenneth Hagin and then followed up by Oral Roberts, Kenneth Copeland. You see T.D. Jakes. You see uh, Paula Myers, um, uh, Paula White, I mean. You see um, others. You see ultimately Joel Osteen. And it's the idea that, you know, if you'll just have faith in God and Miracles will happen, and man, you'll be healthy. God doesn't want you sick, and he doesn't want you poor. This is a thoroughly American concept, by the way. Uh, if you just have faith, we don't even know what faith is. They just talk about the faith and the belief in yourself and whatever. And the only thing that Jesus is useful for is an example of faith, which is ironic. Since Jesus was never wealthy, and you know, he kind of got beaten and put to death at one time, so that didn't work. And then the apostles were never wealthy, and they all suffered. And then Paul himself asked God, God, could you take the thorn out of my flesh? And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect, Paul, when you are weak. And we see all these things. And we see faith being appropriated, stolen from us, and it's changed and twisted. Understand this. Faith is not an abstract quality. That when accepted or affirmed, initiates some spiritual element. Having faith in faith, it's not something abstract. I just have, I affirm the existence of faith and boom. All of a sudden, some spiritual element hits your life and everything is all better. It's not that at all. Understand this also. Secondly, that faith is not something generated from within us to obligate God to act on our behalf. That's paganism. That's paganism 101. God or gods or goddesses, whatever. I'm going to do certain things and you owe me. So I'm going to generate faith. And when I generate faith, God owes me. He's going to do stuff on my behalf. That's prosperity gospel. Nada. Not going to work. In fact, understand this. This is important to our sermon series and today. Our culture, and get this, a corrupted Christianity that embraces our culture, not engages it, but embraces it with open arms, is attempting to steal faith. This is not conspiracy. This is reality. They're taking our concepts that you find in the New Testament, love, hope, grace, faith. And they take them and they twist them and they spin them around to mean something else. Then they shove them back and say, well, here really is what faith is, what love is. It is stealing the foundations of what we believe. With that in mind, we're going back to Hebrews. And I've already kind of laid out what Hebrews is all about. And I love this book. This is an underappreciated book. I really value and love Hebrews. And so, you know, the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time Talking about the superiority of Jesus is so cool to see that. It's so relevant to today. And then he comes and warns them about, you know, leaving Jesus, what's going to happen. But he doesn't say they've done it yet. He doesn't say some of you have done it, but he warns them. And then he comes to chapter 10. I'm going to read a few verses for you out of the New Living Translation. I preach normally out of the New American Standard, which I'll do in just a minute in chapter 11. But sometimes the New Living Translation just has a beauty to it. Starting with verse 32, here's what it says. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. You already suffered, but you were faithful. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering those same things. You helped one another out when you were being beaten. It says you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. You suffered with them. When all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So, do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord, this faith that lasts forever. 
Remember the great reward it brings you. You don't need to throw that aside. You've had it. It's a faith that lasts. Last week I read chapter 10, verse 39 from the New American Standard of the NIV. I want to read it from the Living Translation. It's just beautiful. We're not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. We're the ones who have forever faith. So we come to chapter 11. And here's what it says in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. The word faith, we'll leave this up here so y'all, as I go through it, you can kind of see the connection. The word faith comes from a Greek word, pistis. The verbal form, pestuo, you can see the similarities, means to believe. It's not, it's not just acknowledging with your mind. It is a commitment of your life. It is a trusting so we use words like faith, trust, believe, follow Jesus. Um, it's amazing how, how many words from the Greek language that are, we use have the concept of commitment or trust. Agape, which means love, is the idea of a sacrificial commitment for someone. God so loved the world, he gave Jesus. He made that sacrificial commitment. And so the concept of faith, then, is a commitment of self. It is understood at this point already from the other parts of the book that we're talking about a commitment to Jesus. So faith in Jesus, commitment of your life in Jesus, is the assurance of things hoped for. I want to talk about what it means to be hope, hoping. Hope is not wishful thinking. That's how it is in our culture. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I hope Dallas Cowboys win this afternoon. I do. <laughs> it's time. It really is. They, it, the thing that hurts me is that this is God's team. We know that. <laughs> and for so, this is not an interactive sermon. <laughs> Only one of us is supposed to be here talking. But you remember when Tom Landry was coach and he was this great Christian, it's just like it all worked well. And I think even when Landry left, it was just that, that grace of God just kept going on. And then finally he had enough of Jerry Jones and said, Jerry, you've you got to come to faith. It's kind of like the people of Israel in the wilderness. And I know that God is just saying, Jerry, if you'll just believe, you'll win again. And so what I'm doing, I'll be honest, and when we're finished today, I'm just going to spend after my, the fourth sermon. Just time in prayer on behalf of Jerry. And just say, I'm going to borrow what my Catholic friends do. I'm going to steal some Catholicism. I'm going to donate some of my faith on behalf of the Dallas Cowboys. So, after that bit of blasphemy, uh, what the word hope means. I just made that up at the top of my head. It wasn't even the last sermon. What the word hope means is the confident assurance. It's different. It's the confident assurance of a desired outcome. I do not have that type of hope in the Cowboys. But it's based on faith. Paul says three things abide, remain, a permanent faith, hope, and love. There's an abiding, enduring, forever quality in hope. It's the absolute knowledge that what Christ has given us will come to pass, even though it hasn't perfectly yet. Faith is the assurance of that hope. The word assurance means that which is under. It's the thing you stand on. Some of your versions have substance. Some of your versions have reality. It is the awareness, the actuality that we stand on that what we hope will come to pass. It is, therefore, the convictions of things we've never seen. The concept of the conviction that we never seen. It is, the word conviction means hope. I mean proof. It means the evidence. It's like a court thing. It's like there are things we've never seen. We have evidence. 
it will all come to pass, and that evidence is bound up in faith. In the last century, there was a philosopher theologian named Francis Schaeffer. If you've never read anything about Francis Schaeffer, you should read some of Francis Schaeffer's stuff. And Francis Schaeffer talks about taking a leap of faith. I think sometimes we think that leap of faith is just that, you know, I close my eyes blindly and I just jump somewhere. But what Schaefer meant when he talked about leap of faith, he was talking about something that's based on reality of evidence. He's saying we have a Jesus who is real and a Jesus who lived. And we have a Jesus who died in our place. And we have evidence that he died and evidence that he was buried and evidence that he was raised back to life. It is based on that evidence that you take that leap of faith. And that leap of faith isn't something blind. It's like I'm standing here, and, and, and there's a little chasm there, and I'm going to jump to there. There's evidence that this and that are the same, that I can make that jump and land safely, but I never know till I get there. You know, and depending on whether it's three or four feet, you can just jump, or maybe you take a running start, or maybe some of you just don't even try because you can't make it if you wanted to. But ultimately, you take the leap of faith. He says, by this faith, this forever type of faith, the author of Hebrews says, for by it men of old gained approval. He's talking about the old timers that lived back in the Old Testament days. I don't know if I like that term old timer much. I've been starting to be called old timer once in a while. I don't like that. Some of you look like, you look like you're called old timer. You've been falling apart, dude. You look your age, and that scares me because you're four days younger than me. But, you know, those were the old timers back in the Old Testament. They had a faith. It was called an anticipatory faith. It was the faith that anticipated what was to come. And then that was their testimony. That's what that word gained approval means, testimony. It was their witness. And then he uses them, and I'm going to use Abraham. I'm going to talk about Abraham in a minute. It says in chapter 11, verse 8, Abraham, by, by faith, Abraham went to a land he had never been before. You go back to Genesis 12, there's Abraham. He was barely mentioned in chapter 11, come to chapter 12 of Genesis. He was from the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, with the Tower of Babel and all that. He came from a pagan background. Everybody was pagan back then. He came from a pagan background. And then God appeared to him. And when God appeared to him, all that God did was appear to him and speak. Then Abraham believed and followed God. God revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham had faith. He followed God. He was going to go to the land of Canaan where he had never been before. He went because why? Because God just appeared to him and spoke to him. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's Jesus. I'm going to do it through one son. That son's going to come through Sarah. Got to remember, the son is coming through Sarah, going to have one. Sarah was so old, she couldn't have kids yet, but she was going to. And Abraham believed him. In Hebrews eleven twenty two, it says, when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, which was the son that was promised, why would he be willing to sacrifice Isaac? Because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. He had faith that God would raise, Abraham, would raise Isaac. Why would he do that? How could he have that faith? No one had been raised yet. Lazarus hasn't been raised. Nobody had been raised to life before. Why would God do that? Or why would Abraham have that kind of faith? Because he trusted God. The only way that promise would be fulfilled was through Isaac. Now, I know some people say, well, that story didn't happen. God would never ask Abraham to do it. Well, evidently he did. Because the New Testament affirms it. 
And I know, and I, and I preach this and teach this, that one of the important things about that is Abraham came from a pagan background, and God wanted to be sure that they understood moving forward that Abraham and his descendants, that God did not want human sacrifice. See, the pagans made up these gods and goddesses, and in all that wasn't corrupt enough. Then they took their children and they killed them, especially their infants. They would sacrifice and kill their infants so they would have the blessings of God. So they, when it was in drought, it would be rain. They killed their children so their life would be more convenient. That's not just something we do in the 21st century. They did it back then too. It's as old as paganism. And God said, that's not what I ever want, Abraham. And Abraham understood something only because God spoke to him, and that is faith. He had all the evidence he needed. He had the promise of God. He had the revelation of God. And you and I have more than that. You and I have Jesus. And we have a faith that can last forever. So I want to talk to you now about a faith based on Jesus. Not simply in, which it is, but based upon Jesus. We are in a collision with our culture. We are. And our culture seeks to take the concepts that we believe in and use them. But our understanding of faith is so different, especially forever faith. On Friday, the day before yesterday, was the three month, um, I don't know, more three months that my wife Debbie passed away. And when, when she really realized that how serious the cancer was back in the summer, and she had said this before, but this really hit her. She said, I have faith in Christ. I never, that'll never leave. I have faith that Christ can heal me. And I have faith in Christ will heal me, but I know he may not. And I want to be sure people know and understand that if Jesus doesn't heal me, well, I still trust him. I'll trust him all the way to heaven. Now, she passed on Thursday the 20th on Monday in the hospital, and she knew she wasn't getting out. She decided to sing. And I was there, and her friend Tanya was there, and she sang, It is well with my soul. And that is the way that she would make sure that we understood, that I understood. That even though she hadn't yet seen it, she knew she was going there. And that all that she had hoped for was about to come to fruition to remind me that she had faith. She had forever faith. She was fixing the head and going to forever. And she reminded me she had the faith to get her there. See, that's not what our world offers. Moral relativism doesn't need faith. You get to create whatever reality you want. Who needs that faith? Syncretism doesn't need faith. You can pick and choose whatever you want from any religion. Most world religions don't have any concept of faith. They have things you might believe about. But they don't have the faith that Christianity talks about. They don't have the faith of Jesus. You know, atheism doesn't require faith. I know Norman Geisler wrote a book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and it's cool, and I get it, and I agree. But fundamentally, atheism is the opposite of faith. It is nihilism. It is secularism. It is saying faith is not necessary because it doesn't work. There is no faith. That is the opposite of what we believe. And yet our churches today open up their doors and their arms, not so that people can come and hear the gospel like we do. They open up their doors and their arms and says, give us your culture. We want to think like you think. And we want to believe like you believe. And you can take our ideas and concepts and words and you can twist them and you give them back to us. And we'll take them and we'll use them. Faith is an Old Testament, New Testament concept. It is ours. And people steal faith and want to give it back to us. But we have forever faith. So understand this.
The reason for faith is that a God exists who reveals himself to us. And we need to trust that God. Fundamental to Christianity is the idea that God reveals himself to us. In the beginning, God created. How do I know that? Because God revealed that. If God reveals himself to me, I must trust him. He is the ultimate authority. No other gods or goddesses have ever revealed themselves to us. Just the one God. And with that in mind, understand this, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He is, therefore, the ultimate source and object of faith. I have faith only because of Jesus. I didn't come up with faith. I know I grew up, growing up Southern Baptist has some good things and bad things. And sometimes I'll talk with others about the church I grew up in. God bless them. I love them. They, had, they taught me so many. I, so I, I am amazed that I have turned out the way that I am, <laughs> good or bad, considering the dumb things that I were taught. But I remember them saying, you know, you supply the, God supplies the grace, you just supply the faith. No, you don't. You don't supply faith. If you supply the faith, then you're obligating God to do something. You and I can't obligate, obligate God. That's paganism. The pagans obligate their gods. God gives us the faith, and I respond by taking that faith or rejecting that faith. The faith, the source of faith is Jesus. It's because of Jesus I can have faith. Because he's the revelation of God to me, I can have faith. He then becomes the object of my faith. The object of my faith isn't that I become wealthy or healthy. The object of my faith isn't just believing and then something happens magically, deliciously, you know, and all of a sudden I have all the unicorns and rainbows of life has to offer me. The object of my faith is a, is a God who has revealed himself to me in Jesus who died in the cross in my place and was raised back to life so that I may have salvation. So... With that in mind, the reason and rationale behind trusting Jesus for our salvation is his nature and work, his incarnation and resurrection. Who he is and what he did. The incarnation, God in the flesh, Christian, that's Christmas. Resurrection is that he died on the cross and was raised back to life. That's Easter. I just spent in December four weeks preaching about really the incarnation. Starting in March, I'll preach six weeks on the resurrection. If you go back from the 1st of December and you go 12 months, the next 12 months, 52 Sundays, I'm going to preach about 40 of them, I think. 25% of them were about the nature and the work of Jesus. That's how important it is. And that's just already known. Actually, it'll be more than that because I'm preaching through Acts, and I'm going to mention you know, Jesus' nature and work in Acts several times. I'm going to preach about the second coming. I'll talk about it then. I'm preaching about us being human and what it means to be human, and I'll talk about Jesus being human. Basically, I always preach about the person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. You know why? Because that's everything to my faith. I can't have forever faith. I can't have saving faith if it's not for who Jesus is and what he did for me. That becomes the source of my faith and the object of my faith. And that is unique to Christianity as expressed in the New Testament to us. So, with that in mind, remember this. Faith lasts forever. So does not having faith. And your response to Jesus is a forever decision. That's why it matters. That's why in a culture that's hostile to us, we have to understand what faith is. That's why we not only honor God and grow in our faith, 
That's why we reach people for Christ with faith. It's not ritual. It's not our works. It's not just believing a set of facts. It's trusting Christ completely with your life. That's forever faith. And that is the greatest weapon. That is the greatest tool. That is the greatest thing we have. I know we have the Holy Spirit. I get it. dwelling within me. I know it. I know we have prayer. I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm telling you. It is your faith in Christ, which the Holy Spirit works in, which your prayers strengthen. It is your faith in Christ that is the weapon, the tool, in a collision with our culture. So, I began the sermon today saying that in a collision with our culture that wants to undermine your faith, undermine your salvation, undermine your relationship with Jesus, you need a faith that lasts. You need forever faith. Is that the faith you have? Is that really your faith? The faith that it says, Jesus, here's my life. Because you died on that cross. Because God raised you back to life. Because you are God in the flesh. Because of who you are and what you did. I'm taking my life. I'm giving it to you. And no matter what happens, I'll trust you forever. If you've not done that, you should do that right now where you're at. In a moment, there'll be a few of us standing up here. Ladies, there'll be another woman up here if you'd rather talk to her. But you need to give your life to Christ. And those of you that are followers of Jesus... These past three weeks, one of the things that I've said repeatedly, in fact, the first two weeks there were even slides about it, they were so important. What you need, and what you need now is to have that forever faith to keep just sustaining and guiding you, is you need to become fluent in Jesus. Have you made that commitment? I'm going to say this again next week. It's important. You need to be fluent in Jesus. That's what you need in the culture we live, to be fluent in the Gospels, to be fluent in Acts, to read all those letters. That needs to be the staple of your Christian reading. Not books written by some popular author that you get for $5.99 on Kindle. But the thing that you got because of the blood of Christ that lasts forever. Are you fluent in Jesus? And do you have someone you love and care about? It's not a follower of Jesus that doesn't have forever faith. And you want to come up to talk to one of us and say, I want you to pray because I love him. And I know they're in a collision with the culture, and the culture's one. And I want them to come to Christ. We'll be here. If you want to join our church, we'll be here. I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to walk out of here, and you're going to collide with the culture around you. Be sure you have forever faith. So, Lord, as we come before you, in coming to this beautiful, beautiful letter, this sermon we call Hebrews, from a man who loved people so much and loves you so much that he poured his heart out to show them that how Jesus is superior to anything in the old covenant who comes to this beautiful chapter that says faith is the assurance. Faith is conviction. It's evidence. It's confidence. It lasts forever. Let us have that faith. You give it to us. Let us take it in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand?